Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Nick Gosling, and joining me today is Trey Goff. Trey is a recent graduate of Mississippi State University with a double major in political science and economics, and he's now working on advancing the liberty movement in multiple different capacities, including working with state legislatures uh, and uh, also developing other free society-oriented projects. And one of those is what he's here to talk to us about today, his new Voluntarist Constitution. So, Trey, thanks for being here on the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thanks for having me, Nick. So, tell us about the Voluntarist Constitution. I read the most recent version that you sent over after you had appeared on the uh, Jeff Dice show with the Mises Institute podcast. And so, it's my understanding you're, you're kind of revising this. It's a work in progress. Tell us a little bit about it. How did you come up with this idea? What the, the point of it is? and where you hope to see it go. So I came up with this idea initially because in my studies in political science and economics, I noticed something that to me seemed extremely obvious that not many people were talking about, which is that as demographics shift uh, moving forward, by the year 2050, over 85% of the world's population will live in urban areas, meaning the nation state as it currently exists as a political institution will be completely ossified and inefficient for the shift of the way humans are living and interacting with one another. So from that, it seemed intuitively obvious to me that the next leap would be a devolution rather than an evolution upward, a devolution downward towards a smaller decentralized system of small jurisdictions of city-state type entities with the state part being optional, as, as you'll, I'll soon make clear with the connotations of the Constitution. But with the objective being that I think it's inevitable that smaller jurisdictions who are associated in some way would be the inevitable outcome. Now, around this same time, I started exploring and working in the, the startup society movement and the free society movement generally, which is a, a brief primer. It's just a movement of entrepreneurs and countrypreneurs, if you will, the world over who are working to advance liberty and create entirely new jurisdictions at a small level to experiment in governance and to experiment in liberty and to experiment in freedom. So it was around this time that these two ideas kind of meshed together and I realized, well, if we take as a given that because of demographic shifts, we're going to end up with a entirely new forms of governance in the future, it might behoove us as libertarians and as, as people who advocate for voluntary exchange and voluntary interaction to kind of get ahead of the curve and to attempt to innovate these governance institutions right alongside the startup society movement so that we can get out ahead of whatever nefarious plans uh, people opposed to this may have. So whatever, with the, the pushback from others on the other side of the aisle being an attempt to create a one global overarching government. So my objective with this was to try to provide as much as I could the building block, the foundational core for any potential uh, entrepreneur who may be attempting to uh, create a free society somewhere and create a small, uh, free and peaceful jurisdiction. So the objective with this was to start from the model of currently extant constitutions, with the U.S. Constitution being the most obvious example, look at other attempts to create a, a quote-unquote libertarian or liberty constitution that have been uh, attempted before, and then take all of the best ideas from all of these previous attempts and synthesize it into what would be the ideal starting building block for a liberty or voluntarist constitution. I, I use the terms interchangeably, by the way, voluntarist and liberty constitution. Um, but the objective, again, was to just create the ideal base foundational model constitution moving forward that future entrepreneurs looking to create uh, startup societies and free societies and smaller jurisdictions can innovate off of and can use as the building block for their 
uh, respective governance needs. Well, let me ask you this, and maybe this is a, a bit of just semantics, but what do you think about calling it something other than a constitution, which typically, I mean, I mean, in every example I, I can think of, has a state connotation. Should we maybe call it uh, like a, a covenant charter? Even that, I guess, has state connotations. I mean, so, so is there maybe a better, a better way we could phrase it to sort of convey the point that this is a completely voluntary contract? Now, you do talk about that in your, your preamble, but I'm wondering, has anyone maybe that you've dialogued with brought up that, that point to you? Yes. So with the Mises Institute podcast, Jeff Dice asked me the exact same question. And I'm going to tell you the same thing I told him, which is if you can come up with a better word that does not have any sort of status connotations, please let me know and I'll happily incorporate it. The reason I utilized the word constitution was because I looked at, at using other things like covenant and charter. But the word constitution in and of itself has the connotations that I wanted to get across with this document, which is just simply that a constitution, most of the time when people hear that term, they associate it with the beginning of a new uh, culture, a new society, the beginning of a, a revolutionary step forward in political organization, which is what I view this as. Now, obviously, the entire uh, point of this constitution was to explicitly forbid the formation of a state from ever even being feasible in whatever society would utilize this constitution as their base. However, uh, I just simply could not find a better, more befitting word that does not already have pre-existing status con uh, connotations. Besides the word constitution. So again, and, and anyone else can feel free to email me about this as well, because this this constitution, the reason I'm, I'm wanting to publicize it and do things like this podcast with it is so that I can get feedback from minds far sharper than mine and far more uh, uh, bright and, and luminary than mine so that we can perfect this document moving forward. So if if someone else can come up with a better word than constitution that maybe has this similar, easily, intuitively understandable connotations, please, by all means, let me know. So you're talking about startup states and, and entrepreneurial states and things of that. The one that most comes to mind, I think, is the seasteading movement, which was backed by Peter Thiel and uh, Patrick Friedman some, some years ago. And then it kind of fizzled off for a while. But now it looks like it's making a comeback again. I think they're working on something uh, off the coast of, of France, if that's... If, you probably know more about that than I do. Uh, but is, is that kind of what you're envisioning this as applying to or things like that where, where these actual, be it seasteading or outer space or, or previously un, uninhabited islands, wherever it may be, uh, is that where you kind of see this most likely to take fruition? Yes, that's exactly right. So the Seasteading Institute right now has a memorandum of understanding with the French Polynesian government, actually to start uh, working on the technology and the political free zones that will allow the, the seasteads to operate. So, yes, that's exactly right. I see this working in areas like that, but I, I take it one step further as well. Uh, the problem with only being able to utilize this in, in Terra Nova, in completely unclaimed land, is the simple matter that there is no unclaimed land. Uh, even the right now, the United States, Greenland, and Russia are, are in a little spat over sections of the North Pole that are completely uninhabitable purely for clim uh, climatological reasons. So states, as you know, are very hungry to obtain new land and new territory. So because of that, literally every square inch on the planet, save uninhabitable sections of Antarctica, have already been claimed by some state entity. However, that does not preclude a startup society from being uh, born somewhere that's already claimed by a state. There are a variety of countries from Honduras to uh, China, believe it or not, to a couple of other countries who have started working toward creating these, these free society zones, these smaller jurisdictions that are, are zones, special economic zones is another name for them, that completely exclude the jurisdiction in question from a lot of the political institutions of the surrounding nation state. It, it's it's like a special economic zone, one step further. So it not only gives the zone in question economic freedom, but it also gives it political freedom. And Honduras uh, passed a law in 2014 called the ZEDE law, Z-E-D-E, -E, uh, Zones of Economic Development and Employment. And what this law did was do exactly this, actually. Sans the base Honduran constitution, a ZEDE zone is completely free to innovate whatever sort of political institutions and jurisdictions and legal systems it pleases uh, on top of the Honduran constitution. So under regimes like that, that other countries are looking at working on and passing as well, we have the real possibility of innovating some of these smaller jurisdictions that can utilize 
some really cutting edge and radical forms of governance like this constitution in real life on already extant land and on all land that is already claimed by nation states so that we can begin taking steps forward to innovate this step by step. There's another organization that's working on this as well that just recently started about a month and a half, two months ago, called the Free Society Foundation, founded by uh, Olivier Janssens and Roger Ver, who were two of the original investors in Bitcoin. And they have already pledged over $150 million to doing a similar project, which is to purchase a piece of land and sovereignty from an already extant nation state to innovate a startup society using something very, very much like my constitution. And I've actually spoken with them some. So all that to say, there are a variety of, of movements and uh, groups working toward actualizing this on real uh, land, not just on the moon, not just on seasteads, but on real uh, territory on Earth now. Now, as we start to walk through the, the actual document here, one of the first things that, that should jump out at anybody reading it is it is an actual contract that, that people need to sign, unlike the so-called social contract, which we're all told about, but no one's ever seen. Uh, so take us, take, start to walk us through this, uh, starting with your preamble. What, what is kind of the point of the preamble? What are you trying to convey here uh, fr from a rhetorical standpoint? And then also, is the preamble, uh, is it mainly just rhetorical, or is there some kind of binding element in the preamble itself? Can you explain your thought process there? Yes. So the preamble is meant to be a rhetorical flourish, explaining in as short and succinct of language as possible exactly what the goal of this constitution is. However, toward the end of the, the first paragraph, that paragraph of the preamble, there is some stuff that is, is legally binding in here. So specifically stipulating that the constitution only applies to those who expressly sign it. Now, just in to cover my basis here, I've tried to implement a variety of, of phrases later on in the Constitution that should achieve the exact same effect, just in case were some uh, arbiter or legal uh, judge or group decide that the preamble is not legally binding. There are other portions of the Constitution that cover this, but I meant it to do a little bit of both. In much the same way, for instance, that the Declaration of Independence, which is a, a beautifully written piece of rhetorical flourish, has also been incorporated in Supreme Court jurisprudence. I intend the preamble to work kind of that way as well, which is that it's mainly meant to be a, a rhetorical flourish to just explain what I'm trying to accomplish with this constitution, but also have the force of guiding the rest of the document in any situation where interpretation may be up for grabs and interpretation uh, may be ambiguous. So explain to us basically the, the, the heart of, of the preamble here. What, what, what is the point you're conveying? What is sort of the... The, the framework that you're setting up here, who does it apply to, and, and, and how, how does it inform and guide the clauses which follow, which we'll get into next? So the framework it's setting up here is to simply say that uh, this beautiful phrase that I actually uh, borrowed from some old uh, John Baptiste Say work from the uh, mid-18th century, which is that the right of property is the most powerful of all encouragements to the multiplication of wealth. And that as such, this, the society that this document is intended to create and to seed is one that will be completely predicated on voluntary interaction and mutual respect for property rights. So the point of the preamble is to say that this constitution only applies to those who have explicitly consented to it. And that as such, that combined with the emphasis on voluntary interaction and property rights should guide interpretation of the rest of the constitution that – if anyone ever has a question for any of the clauses that may make them wonder, well, I can see how maybe this would certify some sort of coercive activity, they can always refer back to the preamble and say, no, it's very explicitly clear in this preamble to this document that the driving force and motivation behind it was to create a voluntary society predicated on mutual respect for property rights and non-aggression, which is the entire a point of the preamble is to just say that only those who have explicitly consented does this apply to and the society that is full of individuals who will have consented to this is a voluntary one predicated on property rights and now one of the things that you you mentioned in here is uh, it, it only applies to those who have signed it as well as children guests and visitors so I, I mean, I, I would interpret that as, you know, during their tenure of stay. Is it, do you, has anyone suggested that 
maybe that needs a little bit more uh, fleshing out. For example, uh, uh, how are you uh, judging ch so who's a child in this case? Is it is it eighteen or is it someone who's uh, under the the economic dependence of their parents? Has anyone kind of brought up anything along those lines? Uh, yes, and I've been working very specifically on the definition of child there because it, this is one of the most intractable problems of law generally. When do we? When it was the proper age of consent? Because as you know, even in the current legal system in the United States, the age of consent varies from state to state. And the reason for that is the variety of human experience, the variance of human development and experience means that people will develop at vastly different rates. And see, this is actually brings me to a point I wanted to make about the uh, superiority of a common law polycentric legal order, which is the, the anarcho-capitalist legal order that this constitution is meant to create. One of the inherent advantages of this po uh, polycentric legal order over the uh, monocentric legal order that we currently have, meaning that uh, law comes from one central authority, versus emerging from a variety of legal centers that come together to synthesize the norms of a society, the legal norms of a society, is that different jurisdictions are free to innovate and free to adapt to the specific and unique circumstances of each individual case and culture and community before it, which is entirely impossible under a monocentric uh, statist legal order, a legal order predicated on the legislations and, and statutes coming from coming from down on high from a central authority. So let me give you an example. In a polycentric legal order like this, it is entirely plausible that you do not, in fact, have to stipulate a age of consent at all, one universal age of consent. But rather, it can be determined on a case-by-case -case basis by the arbiter or judge who is dealing with the problem, predicated on the unique individual experiences and objective indicators of maturity and development of the individual in question, which enables you to reach the absolute most efficient and judicious outcome for each individual case instead of applying a necessarily ill-fitting one-size-fits-all solution to every single case. So as we start to move actually on into the clauses next, the first thing we run into is the definitions section. And anybody who's worked with business contracts or read a bunch of statutes, uh, and, and believe me, I feel your pain if that is your experience, one of the first things you run into typically is definitions. Uh, and, and so in your, in, your, in your voluntary constitution, that's the first thing we hit is you define private property and homesteading and other things of that sort. So walk us through these definitions and why they're so important to the rest of the document. So the definitions were by a large margin the things that I spent the most time on in this document, because as I'm sure anyone who's who's read in this area rapidly comes to find, it's really hard to define private property and property right and coercion. And I don't want to be misconstrued as saying these are the one and only one true definitions of those words. Isn't That's not it at all. This was just the closest that I could come up with. And before I continue, I have to give credit to someone, a, a legal scholar far more brilliant than I am, who helped me a lot with these definitions, which is Stefan Kinsella. Uh, in fact, the definition of private property almost entirely ended up coming from Kinsella. So uh, shout out to him for helping me with this. But the point of the definition of private property was to do two things, to make sure that the definition of private property, because the term obviously shows up throughout the rest of the document innumerable times, is as clear and unambiguous as possible, and that it totally prevents even the possibility of intellectual property from cropping up in this free society, which I know is a bit of a controversial stand within the libertarian community even. But to me, it's, it's relatively straightforward in that Kinsella himself in his work uh, against intellectual property talks about the, the philosophical incoherence of intellectual property within a uh, private property right framework, within a, a Rothbardian deontological framework, and also helped along with this position against intellectual property is the book by Michelle Boldrin and David Levine, Against Intellectual Monopoly. These two books kind of worked hand-in-hand hand to wholeheartedly convince me against the both, again, philosophical incoherence and consequentialist just bad outcomes that are a result of intellectual property. Uh, so because of that, I've tried to craft and, and tailor this definition of private property to make it absolutely impossible for intellectual property institutions to crop up 
in whatever free society would be utilizing this constitution. So because of that, a stipulated that private property has to be any discernible object or electromagnetic wavelength. So with electromagnetic wavelength, that caveat coming from one of Rothbard's uh, most excellent uh, essays regarding the creation of property rights for things that generally aren't considered uh, able to be homesteaded and aren't uh, applicable for property rights, one of those things being electromagnetic wavelengths. And uh, Rothbard, just Google Murray Rothbard electromagnetic wavelength spectrum. Uh, he specifically talks about in an ideal world that I'm trying to uh, outline here with this constitution, exactly how that would work. Uh, but it, it has to be accessible, recognizable, and discernible, uh, persist in the time scale of human action, which the point of that being an intentionally vague phrase that is meant to give a common law judge leeway to say when a resource is and is not being utilized. So what this is meant to do is pre to prevent a individual from attempting to homestead a piece of land or a resource and then never do anything with it and lay an infinite claim to it. So this is to, meant to prevent the creation of meaningless, infinite claims like that, uh, that it exists independently of any perception or consciousness, which is, again, attempting to get at uh, absolutely disallowing intellectual property, and that it is uh, possible to be measured by its physiochemical characteristics using the international system of units, which is MKSA, or any other equivalent conceptual system. With that whole package coming together to define private property as a physical object that is capable of being homesteaded, that is not in any way, shape, or form just a thought or idea or design in someone's head. So all of that to attempt as, as accurately as possible to prevent the emergence of intellectual property. And then moving on from there, uh, attempted to define a previously unowned or abandoned scarce resource, uh, exactly what a property right is, which is the exclusive use of and complete control of private property. A coercive act, which is an act involving the use of private property on which a cognizable property right already exists, but without the free and voluntary consent of the legitimate owner. And then homesteading, which is the process by which human beings justly acquire property rights in a previously unowned or abandoned scarce resource by mixing one's labor with the resource. With the, the culmination of these five definitions, removing any of the ambiguity surrounding those particular terms, because... Within the libertarian community, even the definition of private property or the definition of a property right or the definition of a coercive act could take up the text of an entire book in and of themselves and have sparked some absolutely fantastic intellectual debates in the libertarian community. My objective here, though, was simply to try to lay out the most uncontroversial, straightforward, unambiguous definitions of those terms that I think we can all agree on so that moving forward, the rest of the document is straightforward and not open to as much interpretation as, say, the United States Constitution is. This is one of the biggest flaws of the U.S. Constitution that I was attempting to rectify with this section, is that the U.S. Constitution doesn't have a definition section. And as anyone who's familiar with any area of uh, constitutional law is well aware, the Supreme Court has done an excellent job of twisting and misconstruing the interpretation of individual terms within the Constitution to make it such that seemingly straightforward sections actually sanction completely unlimited state power. So the point of the definition section was to prevent that from ever taking place within the free society where this constitution would operate. So as we start to move into the, the more specific practical uh, application clauses of your document here, Article 2, you start defining what, uh, what constitutes rights, and essentially everything is built around property rights. So Walk us through that. So, sure. I, I begin by stipulating one of what, to me, is the base claim of deontological natural rights libertarianism, which is that every human being has an inherent, exclusive, and inviolable right to self-ownership. And as Rothbard lays out in Ethics of Liberty, it is from this inviolable right to self-ownership that all of the rest of libertarian ethical philosophy flows. And two, that no law shall countenance the existence of slavery, conscription, indenture, or any other form of involuntary servitude, because it is intuitively obvious that uh, a, a piece of property, in order to be uh, open to homesteading and to be able to be traded, must be divisible and fungible, meaning it must be able to be traded physically in some way. Well, obviously, you can't trade your mind. Sure, you can, you can trade your body. You can trade your labor, the output of your body, but it's physically impossible until we can upload our consciousness to the cloud with AI to trade your mind for something else. So because of that, the, the idea of slavery 
is self-contradictory within the libertarian framework. So I'm just trying to lay that out because one of the immediate objections to most uh, li radical libertarian philosophy like this is always, oh, well, if you own yourself, can't you sell yourself into slavery, which is just blatantly false. Uh, further, that human beings possess the inalienable right of self-ownership that likewise have the right to justly acquire property and claim property rights over a previously unowned or abandoned scarce resource through the process of homesteading. That human beings likewise may acquire title to new property through the process of peaceful and voluntary trade, exchange, and contract, with the point of those two together uh, attempting to lay out as succinctly and unambiguously as possible the only way through which someone can come to acquire new property. Uh, with just the, the implication being uh, coercive obtainment of property is explicitly disavowed there. It, it's, it's not listed in either one of those. So every individual should have the right to freedom of contract, meaning that a rights holder's consent is both necessary and sufficient to transfer alienable title to property. So this is ensuring that uh, the transfer of property titles is the only way that individuals can facilitate trade and exchange. This is the most philosophically coherent and way to do this and the most efficient way to do it. And that all interactions between individuals are to be voluntary, consensual, and peaceful. And that as such, no individual or group of individuals shall abridge the right of any person to purchase, gift, use, control, exchange, lease, sell, transfer, bequeath, dispose of, or in any manner enjoy their property without interference unless and until the exercise of their control infringes the property rights of others. With that being, to me, the linchpin of the Constitution. All that long word, longly worded clause is meant to say is that individuals can transfer property between one another and utilize their property in absolutely any way the human imagination can conjure so long as it does not infringe upon the property rights of others. That way, you, with that clause, that singular clause, you prevent everything from victimless crime laws to coercive taxation to a variety of other abrogations of justice that status systems currently propagate. That one point alone to me is, is one of the most important in the entire Constitution. Uh, further, that the only legally or morally permissible utilization of coercion is reactive coercion in direct and proportional response to an initiation of aggressive force against a peaceful individual's property rights as specifically defined herein. But the point of that, again, further enshrining that the only time coercion, meaning aggression that is uninitiated, is or that is that is unprovoked is possibly allowed morally or legally in a truly free society is if it is in direct and proportional response to an a previous initiation of force meaning that the only just force is reactive force in the sense that if someone invades your property right you have an equal and proportional right to aggressively repel them from the violation of your property right in proportion to the degree that they violated your rights all parties to this Constitution further have an absolute right to self-defense in concurrent and proportional response to an uninitiated and uninvited coercion, manifest or imminent. Just reiterating exactly what I just said, that reactive violence is the only violence that is permissible in this society. And that further, the only legally enforceable rights are property rights. So with that last clause being completely redundant, if you read the first uh, rights one through eight, uh, it clearly stipulates that property rights are the absolute only form of right one can possibly envision in this free society. But I put it in there anyway, just to explicitly clarify, because one of the biggest claims that we constantly see uh, from the progressive left is that human beings have all sorts of positive rights, ranging from a right to health care to a right to education to a right to quality food to whatever other right we can imagine that we have that, that involves the conscription of someone else's labor or property. And what I'm tr attempting to do by being redundant here is just to explicitly say in case you don't read between the lines and make it clear enough that uh, property rights are the only rights, I'm going to explicitly say property rights are the only rights. Now, moving on from there into Article 3 is when you start to discuss contracts and, and the, the purpose and enforceability of contracts. Has anyone brought up uh, how blockchain technology, which I, I think is really going to revolutionize how we do contracts in the coming decades, might come into play here. Have you put any any thought into how that may how that may work in this sort of a situation? Yes. So the brevity of the contract section is actually a direct result of blockchain technology. I too am absolutely fascinated by the implications of blockchain technology for the future of 
human development generally in the future for it's increasing the efficiency of everything from governance to credit rating agencies to to currency to everything it's absolutely astounding uh, I, I in fact trade some cryptocurrencies myself so because of that i tried to keep this contract section as brief as possible as you can see it's only four points and that's because all that i wanted to say with the contract section is that all contracts should be voluntary and involve a title of transfer and that they should all require express consent beyond that Individuals should be free to innovate whatever form of contract they can possibly imagine that they think would best facilitate the, the trade of a title to property that will best uh, satisfy the and maximize the utility of both parties involved in the formation of the contract. So I try to keep this as brief as possible. Again, just saying that uh, individuals or groups of individuals may voluntarily transfer a title to any property between and amongst any other legitimate property owner. Just saying that Individuals can contract with anyone else under almost any circumstances, so long as they are not coercive. That contracts are to be enforceable through the use of any arbitration agency concurrently approved by both parties of the contract prior to the contract formation and in accordance with all provisions of this Constitution. Uh, that only legitimate property, as defined in this Constitution and in accordance with all provisions of this Constitution, may be, subject, may be the subject of a title transfer. And that the right to freely and voluntarily contract is absolute and viable. So as you can see, those those four sentences are are a bit overlapping, and that all that they enshrine is that individuals or groups of individuals can trade and contract in whatever way they please, so long as it does not violate the rights of others, and that further contracts can be enforceable in the event of a violation of a contract through any arbitration agency that is either a stipulated in both contracts beforehand or be agreed upon by both parties uh, ex post after the violation of the contract. And there's actually a unique way to ensure the, the enforcement of this that I only recently stumbled upon in the last week through this absolutely wonderful book written by my friend Tom Bell. Uh, the name of the book is Your Next Government? Question mark. It's an absolutely phenomenal book. I highly suggest it to anyone interested in this, these ideas because you'll see a lot of what I'm saying echoed in Tom's book. Tom lays out a novel idea for ensuring that arbitration between two uh, clashing entities can always be just and unbiased in that uh, party A to a, a contract and party B to a contract can both pick their respective arbiters and then those two arbiters come together and pick a third. Meaning you have moved the responsibility for picking the actually enforceable arbitration of the contract far enough removed from the initial clashing forces that any bias can be completely eliminated. So that's, that's actually something I plan on adding to this, which leads me to a broader point about the Constitution I want to make, which is that this is still a, a document in formation, a document in evolution. So if, if anyone has any feedback or ideas or critique that they think would help improve the document for future use and future iterations, uh, by all means, please let me know. And where can they where can they reach you, Trey? Is there a, a website, social media? Do you want them to email you? Yeah. So for now, email me. I'm currently building the website for this document as we speak. Uh, hopefully, it'll be done in the next month or two. But you can just email me at trey.goff at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-Y dot G-O-F-F at gmail.com. Now, as we move into the next article, it starts to get a lot more into the mechanics of arbitration and, and actual uh, actual legal proceedings. So... How would this work? Is it do we have these these various arbitration agencies, and of course, I mean, we, we see this all throughout the works of Rothbard and Hoppe and Bob Murphy. We've had on our show who's talked quite a bit about this. But for those who maybe aren't that familiar with it, or or maybe there's kind of a different take on it that you're intending here in in your document, uh, who, who is actually adjudicating these things? What gives them the right to say, "Hey, I'm I, I'm a new." Uh, defense rights organization on the market? Is it that everyone's kind of voluntarily consenting to to this document in order to operate in that territory? How do you sort of envision that working? That's exactly right. So one of the initial people who gave me the idea that for the need of this constitution in the first place was actually uh, Dr. Bob Murphy and his work, Chaos Theory. He talks about in Chaos Theory how in the ideal free society, there would most likely be a baseline contract that almost everyone agrees to or that everyone does agree to that is sort of the foundation of every other contract moving forward from there. Well, that is precisely what I intend this constitution to be. So this constitution is simply in this justice section specifically, Article 4, is just a express stipulation of some of the 
operational norms of common law that have evolved over the millennia of the operation of English common law. So it's just an, an explicit enumeration of some of the innovations of common law that have created a more just and efficient judicial system. Things like the proportionality of punishment, strict liability, restitution, uh, jury trials, uh, due process, all of these things, which are sort of a given in a common law legal system. I have simply explicitly stated in, and put into this document to sort of codify some of the more readily and ubiquitous, uh, readily agreed upon and ubiquitous aspects of common law that can be found the world over. Let me ask you one question here, Trey. So on, on juries, how, in this sort of a society, how do you have a, how do, how would we have juries without uh, conscripting juries, unless you're talking about a, like professional jurors who this is their thing and they're legally trained. What, what, is, what are your thoughts on that? So that's exactly what I envision in this society, that there would be a, a class of professional jurors, which at first sounds strange to people who've never encountered it. But once you think about it a little bit, uh, you can rapidly come to see that this would probably be a more, and I think it would absolutely be a more judicious and more efficacious legal system. Because right now, as it stands, jurors who are conscripted from the general population have absolutely little to no knowledge of the ins and outs of the permissibility of evidence, the proper proceedings and procedure of a just uh, a legal decision, of a just legal case. Uh, they don't know very much at all about legal philosophy, judicial philosophy. And because of that, it is to me re remains an absolute wonder that gathering a group of 12 of these absolutely random people can uh, land upon a just decision as often as it does. It's a testament to the power of emergent order that this works. However, in an ideal free society, you wouldn't have to worry about the whims and biases of jurors impacting the justice of your decision. For instance, in the current system we have of conscripting completely random jurors out of the general population, you run into all sorts of just brutally unjust decisions, the likes of which let the officers who uh, murdered people like Freddie Gray in, in Baltimore go, or, or the officers, or you, you get decisions like letting the four officers who brutally beat Rodney King back in 1992, be completely acquitted on their first trial, which instigated the LA riots. Uh, the reason that we have those sorts of blatantly unjust violations of rights and blatantly unjust decisions within current legal orders is precisely because of this random selection of juries. So if you have a professional class of juries, they now have a professional reputation to protect. So if you know arbitration agency A, regularly hires from a juror agency A, and the juror agency A consistently makes racist decisions, then you're probably not going to want to hire either arbitration agency A or juror agency A because you know that they're going to make consistently biased decisions uh, against uh, non-white individuals. So because of that, that agency would rapidly go out of business. You have just pure market forces at work to encourage jurors and to incentivize jurors to be as just and as straightforward as possible. Now, what this also does is this would mean that you would ha have a class of people who are intimately familiar with the inner workings of, of common law legal order, in intricately and, and intimately familiar with the legal philosophies behind the foundations of your society, of the, the legal philosophies behind the documents like the Constitution and like the formation of, of contracts in the society, that you can rest assured will have the requisite knowledge to make the absolute most unbiased and most judicious decision possible based on the evidence and circumstances of your individual case. You do not have that assurance in today's, in today's age. You have jurors who are randomly selected who are regularly coerced and misled by lawyers who simply know more about evidentiary standards or lawyers who know more about human psychology than the jurors. None of that would be a problem in a free society like this where jurors actually get remunerated for their work. Now, in Article 5, uh, basically, it's what, you, what it seems like you're trying to do here is just sort of make very clear that no state shall be formed, right? So you're saying no compulsory taxation, no imminent domain. Walk us through these prohibitions and, and kind of what the point was. I mean, it, it seems to me that the point was to just really make sure that you're hammering home that it can't be misconstrued, no, no state, as we think of today, shall be formed uh, under this document. Is that, is that accurate? That is absolutely accurate. So the operable 
phrase here, and the most important phrase is actually on the introduction to these prohibitions, where I say that the following laws, private covenants, or practices are impermissible and unconstitutional for any entity to enforce, and here's the key, on the property of another without prior express and voluntary consent. So before I get into all 10 of these prohibitions, which I do want to talk about, I want to make clear that you can, for instance, completely agree to uh, a compulsory transfer of money contractually. So you can agree to pay your cable company for their services and that if you do not pay them, they can then sue you, take you to court, and that the court can coercively extract the money from you. So you've contractually agreed to this. So the operable phrase there is on the property of another without their consent. What I'm trying to do there is prevent someone to claim a monopoly on force or claim that they can do any of these 10 things to someone else without their consent. This way, I'm not uh, accidentally outlawing, say, homeowners associations or something like that. Obviously, you should be able to freely and, and privately agree and voluntarily agree to whatever private governance institutions you well please, as Hoppe talks about a lot. The point of this was just to prevent that from ever occurring on the property of another without their consent. So having said that, uh, these go through, and I, I tried to think of as many ways as possible that I could each individually, with, with each individual one of these, strike a death blow to any state that I could envision. So each one standing alone would hopefully strike a death knell to a state. Taken together, they should make abundantly clear that the society that is governed by this constitution, the society that has this constitution as its foundation, will not be one governed by a coercive, coercive state, period. So uh, I say here, any coercive, non-voluntary transfer of money from any individual or group of individuals to any governing, governing entity, as in compulsory taxation, uh, any coercive, non-voluntary transfer of any private property from an individual or group of individuals to any governing entity, as in asset forfeiture or eminent domain, any coercive, non-voluntary limitation, stipulation, regulation, or restriction on the ownership, transfer, and usage in any way of any private property whatsoever, except in cases regarding circumstances beyond the territorial borders of the jurisdiction of this constitution. So I want to stop there for just a second and just explain that last little caveat. I envision this constitution being utilized in the world's first free society to actually make it. So the world's first free society to be inhabited by a group of people and to be economically prosperous and active. This initial free society will inevitably be operating in an international legal order surrounded by coercive nation states. So what you can't have happening is this initial startup society, this initial free society, be a, a, a drug trafficking haven, for instance, that just traffics illegal substances into other countries where those substances are illegal. Obviously, those, the substances, whatever they may be, let's say marijuana, would be completely legal within the free society because, as you can see from, the, from Section 1 and Article 1 to Section 5 here, there's no possible way you could stipulate the, the abolition or the prohibition of marijuana within this society. However, if members of your free society start trafficking it into other nation states, that would inevitably instigate the ire and anger of that nation state. And it may, uh, may very well threaten the existence and, and present an existential threat to the free society. So because of that, I had to make some concessions here for respect of the international legal order. Assuming that this constitution would be utilized in a world still populated by nation states that have very large armies and do not take very kindly to their uh, arbitrary and unjust laws being violated. So moving forward from there, uh, laws, rules, and regulations or pronunciations coercively penalizing in any way any victimless or consensual actions whatsoever. Uh, laws, rules, and regulations and pronunciations coercively compelling any individual to act in any way whatsoever against his or her express will, except at the behest of a voluntarily signed uh, contract, any form of restriction, hindrance, or otherwise forceful intervention against any movement of individuals or group of individuals across the borders of the territory over which this constitution has jurisdiction, with that one being a particularly controversial topic among some of the, some of the more devout uh, Hoppians who have, have read my constitution. However, I fully stand by this. Because the point of this particular, the point number six here, is to prevent the restriction of immigration in a non-voluntary way. So, for instance, it's perfectly permissible, obviously, for you to prevent the immigration of an individual across your private property. The difference is you cannot prevent that same individual 
from crossing my private property if I give them permission to do so. So that's the, the point of that one is just to say you can't stop an individual from crossing someone else's private property. It may very well be the case that you absolutely despise uh, people with an IQ below 140 and don't want anyone with an IQ below 140 in your society. Well, if I invite my friend who has an IQ of 120 to my house and into my property and uh, to cross the roads that I voluntarily contracted with, then I have every right to do so regardless of how angry it makes you. So moving forward from there, uh, laws respecting or establishing a right to property in contravision uh, of these definitions of rights to property established herein. So this is, again, preventing someone from contriving some right, positive right to something. Uh, criminal statutes that do not specify an exact mens rea requirement for prosecution and enforcement. So this is, again, just an, yet another way I was trying to imagine preventing a, a potential state from creating victimless crime laws or, or unjust laws uh, prohibiting voluntary activity. Laws, rules, regulations, and pronunciations respecting or concerning the establishment of a central bank and any attempt to establish a monopoly on coercion and force within the jurisdiction of this constitution. With the last one, uh, saving the best for last there, being the most obvious, blatant, and straightforward prohibition of a state. Just explicitly stating, no one shall have a monopoly on coercion, period, the end. With the culmination of the entire document being the foundation of a polycentric, common law, decentralized, completely voluntary society. Now, Trey, one thing that uh, I noticed doesn't appear in here that is seen in, in pretty much every other uh, normal kind of business contract is some kind of an amendments clause. And I think part of that is maybe because it would be very hard to amend this once it was already in place, given that you'd have to get the consent of everyone, right? Everyone who's, who signed it and still living under that legal order. How do you envision dealing with that? Is, is it just you're trying to get every all the ducks in a row ahead of time? Or... Uh, you know, what happens if you, you figure out later, oh, well, we missed something or we need to adapt this somehow? So a couple of points on that. One, I envision this being utilized in a world where there are a variety of competing governance institutions. So I envision this as being one of a variety of potential governance innovations moving forward. Uh, in this sort of world, exit costs for moving out of a jurisdiction are extremely low. And consent to the governance of a jurisdiction is extremely high because obviously the, the consent is as high as it can possibly be. It's expressed and voluntary. And predicated on those two stipulations, people should be able to, quote unquote, vote with their feet and purchase a different governance institution were they to not like the one that they're currently living in. Because, again, exit costs should be low and entrance and exit should be completely expressed and voluntary. However, you're exactly right that it could very well be the case that you end up with a the society that's governed by this document that may need to amend it in some way, shape, or form. I can certainly imagine that being the case. Uh, however, I envision this document as kind of being the template and the, the base for the evolution of governance institutions off of the top of this document, if that makes any sense. So each individual usage of the Constitution should be free to alter it and build on top of it however they see fit. So, for instance, if the voluntary society that you and I want to create, Nick, we, that we want a, a amendment process to be stipulated in this Constitution, we can simply add it beforehand, and then once the Constitution is signed and in place, we'll have an amendment process. So the problem that you run into is just from a pure public choice uh, theory perspective, it's next to impossible to stipulate a way to create an amendment process without introducing democracy and the whole host of ills that come along with the introduction of that. So my hope is twofold. One, that this document would be utilized in a world of competing governance institutions who are, are all competing for your business within their, their governance uh, framework. And two, that individuals would be free to innovate on top of this base constitution to tailor it to their specific cultural and communal needs so that the, the need to uh, edit or amend a major portion of the constitution would be sort of superfluous because they did it uh, ex ante. Yeah, that that makes total sense. I mean, really, what you're, I mean, for for those who are maybe in in the software movement or anything like that, you're kind of open sourcing this, is what it sounds like. You're 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 making it available for for people to adapt and modify, and you know, somebody can read it and go, oh, well, I like this, but I don't like that. I'm gonna keep this part, throw out that part, and, and the whole idea here is is voluntary community and cooperation. It's it's being able to to form into communities and groups 
uh, under mutually agreed upon rules and, and, and regulations that you consent to. And yeah, I mean, that, that may be that we have a, a bunch of little diverse societies all over in that kind of a, in that kind of a scenario. But I mean, why, why is that a bad thing? I mean, it's the exact opposite of like what the left is trying to do, which is make everybody exactly the same. And, and the same is always bad. Uh, <laughs> trying to make us all poor uh, and, and, and subjugated to, to the central order. Uh, decentralization, you know, we may have lots of diversity and, you know, there may be communities that, hey, I, like I have a problem with or you have a problem with and I don't want to go there or you don't want to go over here. That's totally fine. Uh, so long as we're not being forced into it or forced to live there or forced to go there. So as, as I reflect on this, I mean, I think this is just a really important project that that you're working on. And like you said, it, it is a work in progress. Uh, there's There's going to be things that maybe this could be better, that could be better, you know, we should do this a little differently, but it's it, it, it's a work in progress. And the, the bottom line is, if we understand economics, as, as we do here on this show, and most of our listeners do, the market works, right? And so the, the, the point of that is that even though there may be, we can't solve every problem, we don't have perfect foresight, we're not, we're not profits, uh, I mean, it's not like the state is doing that well now. Uh, this is objectively better than anything the state can come up with simply because it's it's subject to market transactions. So that's kind of my, my closing pitch in favor of your project. I'll, I'll let you have the last word. I really appreciate it, Nick. And you really hit the nail on the head when you mentioned this as like an open source software. Uh, I envision this as being the, the Linux kernel of governance institutions, the Linux kernel of liberty that people can build off of and create whatever innovative uh, governance institutions or software that they uh, can possibly conjure off the top of this. And you're exactly right. The beauty of it is that this very well will will inevitably sanction uh, a variety of diverse, small, decentralized jurisdictions, many of which I may have a problem with because I may have a subjective preference for for one uh, cultural affinity that uh, another group of people may not have. But the beauty of this is that they'll be free to innovate with their governance institutions, whatever subjective preferences they please. And at the end of the day, if I'm not happy with it, I can select a different governance institutions. As you said, this is just applying the market, which we know has massively increased human prosperity at a scale unheard of in the evolution of man to governance institutions as well. It's opening up market forces to the last of the bastions that we have prevented the market from operating in. And in, in doing so, I just hope that this would this project would be able to, moving forward, maximize liberty, and that I hope to actually truly utilize this project in a real-world example uh, as soon as humanly possible, which is why I'm working with some of these free society projects to do just that. All right, so if anyone wants to reach out to you, like you mentioned earlier, they can email trey.goff at gmail.com. We'll also link over to your website when you have that uh, set up, Trey, so... That does it for this episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to reach out, you can email podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also support us at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Music